uproar in the studio your weekly chinese blockbuster podcast i'm noah i'm reza i'm andrew and this is the jackie chan post rush hour three season if you like the show and can afford it we would really appreciate it if you would contribute to our patreon at patreon.com slash uproar in the studio this week we're talking about bleeding steel released in 2017 we're going to give a synopsis for the movie but if you want to watch this movie without spoilers listen to the show afterwards Later, we'll be talking with composer Peng Fei, whose music has been heard at the Royal Albert Hall, the Beijing Olympics, and in the score for this movie. After that, we have a conversation with Kier Beck, who was a stunt rigger, coordinator, and second unit director on this movie, as well as having worked on the Matrix movies, Mad Max Fury Road, Casino Royale, and of course, the Scooby-Doo movie. His directorial debut, Argyle, is coming soon. Last up, we have Sammy the Dwarf, who plays the witch's helper in this movie. You can also see him in The Mandalorian, Exorcism at 60,000 Feet, and Muna. But first, we talk about the movie with three-time guest, formerly Chengdu-based journalist, Lauren Teixeira. Check out her upcoming podcast about Carl Ulrich Nausgaard, which you can find on Twitter at rstrugglepod. Here's our conversation about Bleeding Steel, starting with a synopsis. This 2017 production stars Jackie Chan as Special Agent Lin Dong, who was haunted by a supernatural crime that tore him away from his dying young daughter 13 years ago. The perp was a half-man, half-machine monster named Andre, who could only be stopped when Jackie Chan drove him into an oil tank. Andre resurfaces when an author named Rick Rogers publishes a book titled Bleeding Steel, about a girl given a metal heart. Andre, now weakened and operating from a stealth airplane climate-controlled to allow him to survive, Sends agents after Rogers after realizing the story is based on lost technology Andre once developed that could restore him to his former state. Lin Dong realizes that the girl in the story is really his daughter, and along with a talented hacker named Lee Sen tracks down his missing daughter, leading to a climactic confrontation on Andre's spaceship. Magicians, quack doctors, and the color palette of a kindergarten finger painting class, this is Bleeding Steel. What'd you think of the part of the movie you did get to see? I kind of liked it. It yeah. was fun. How far did you, what did you get to? Yeah, I got to where they very politically incorrectly investigated the, the source of the transvestite tomb and found her to, or him to have double-crossed them. Because the Voldemort guy was, <laughs> he swore to get revenge on <laughs> on Jackie Chan for further deforming for him. Yeah, yeah. Well, but he already looked like shit before, so... <laughs> Yeah, I was thinking, like, <laughs> Sith Lord. He's like, I'm so ugly now. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, then he got confined like to the skies yeah. in that weird spaceship thing. Yeah, and so right. he could just wear scrubs for the rest of his life. <laughs> he, uh, yeah, I have to say, I was, yeah, I kind of appreciated the brazenness of it, just combining every <laughs> possible action movie trope over the past 30 years. It, it he was kind of Mr. Freeze meets Voldemort. <laughs> Yes, I think that's a great description. <laughs> yeah, Lou, like, I, d- I definitely wanted to talk about the weird Joel Schumacher vibes throughout this movie. Like, there are lots <laughs> of stuff that's just stolen straight from Batman and Robin for some reason. Some guy even mentions, is that Batman? When oh, the, right. the, <laughs> yeah. the minion of the Sith Lord lands on a person's car, a random civilian goes, is that Batman? 
And that was kind of I a like, fun I like the civilian dialogue in this a lot, actually. There's a lot of random things that are said and, like, picked up for the movie for no reason. Like, when... I don't know if you got to it, but there was a scene where the alien things were, like, the storm in a troopers? hotel lobby. Yeah, the stormtroopers were in a hotel yeah, lobby. Yeah, they were literally little just stormtroopers. <laughs> a little girl just goes, like, look, mommy, aliens from space. Like, nice. <laughs> why? <laughs> like, why? Really? Very normal observation, very normal, you know, dialogue, yeah. reaction. You realize how essential the trope of the civilian onlooker is to action movies, but you've really got to make more use of it than merely observing literally what's happening. You know, it's got to be a little bit of what they call dramatic irony. I Um, think a lot of it is probably because... Having spoken to one of the dubbers on this, I think it's just because the dubbers are just kind of saying whatever comes to their mind. Yeah, they're they just kind of off the dome. I, th- I think yeah. it's also interesting that this thing is like, it was marketed as a police story movie in some countries. Like, even when he's doing sci-fi, Jackie Chan is a cop. I mean, he's yep. an agent in this one. It's not It's not really... When he's like dying, getting run over by you know, the, the Iceman, or Mr. Ice or whatever, he's... The first <laughs> thing that comes to his head is like protect the witness he tells his other officer yeah well he misses his daughter's deathbed to go escort this witness right he's really committed but he actually to... saves his daughter by missing right her because she gets a mechanical or she gets resurrected or something yeah she gets the space i heart. read the wikipedia page <laughs> she's yeah. the robocop <laughs> yeah i was thinking there's a little dash of robocop in all of this too yeah. there's um, even like a mean girl scene in this movie there's like a high- really <laughs> Yeah, in the second half. I can't believe I missed that. That's also sort of like Spider-Man, though. I definitely saw someone shooting a web sometime in a battle, and it was, yeah, there was some kind of web-like thing that was emitted. I mean, you saw the transvestite scene, right? But I don't know if you saw the development of that character, which is one of the most puzzling things in this movie to me. I have no idea what the fuck is up with that guy. For Uh, 95% of the movie, you're not aware of kind of who he is, because he kind of comes off as like a... Comic relief? I don't know, in certain parts, comic relief, but also like Julian Assange. He's like just... (laughs) Yeah, he's like a hacker. Yeah. Yeah, like a vigilante hacker. But I did read on Wikipedia that he was revealed to be the son of the arms dealer who was mentioned in the beginning in connection with something. I don't really remember. Wait, what? (laughs) Yeah, I I read this on Wikipedia. It was a revenge plot some sort yeah wikipedia knows more about this movie his than colleague i do that lee sen was the son of the arms dealer who sought to recover james's achievements and take revenge on andre the name of the bad guy for the murder of his family 13 years ago he also was a fellow mate of nancy slash cc at the orphanage which is shown at- in the movie yeah oh, okay. the arms dealer shit though i have no like i've seen this movie like seven times just for different yeah, interviews it's seven times what the fuck yeah. is wrong with at like three times speed for most of them but like there are like four interviews on this episode being a podcaster you guys are thorough no i know you pick up little things by the seventh time like you know the australian guy who rips off the packer material or whatever for his book yeah yeah that guy rocked that guy rocked and in the tv show the good morning australia or whatever that he is a guest on he talks about how the story is about like a wounded marine they mentioned that briefly they mentioned that briefly and that's all you really you know 
know it should be mentioned briefly. They just pulled that punch for a second. Like, haha, look at a uh, white man PTSD. It's a uh, well. First of all, his name is Rick Rogers. <laughs> and I think that's really all you need to know. I also noticed that on some point in what's the thing in the bottom third of the screen on news cable the news. Press. Anyway, the <laughs> the thing the headline under the newscaster is Roger Rick was found murdered. <laughs> <laughs> so i like that the chinese people doing effects did not even give a fuck about fact checking any of this there's so many like incongruous elements in this movie there's this story over there there's witchcraft there's, <laughs> right there's like legit witchcraft hypnosis witchcraft i don't know if there are drugs involved magic there is the actual magician who's in this movie they hired just some australian magician to be the apparently he's oh, playing is that the spiritualist they talk about in the wikipedia article no the spiritualist is like a legit witch this is like oh okay so there's a witch a and a magician well the witch sends the daughter to the magician to get hypnotized there's a witch and a poser witch he's like chris angel he's very chris angel right got it okay and he performs <laughs> Like the Sydney Opera House. House. In the Sydney Opera House, yeah. <laughs> He's like an oh, Australian okay. with dreads. You know, that sort of Australian. Oh, yeah. I mean, listen, have you ever been to Thailand during February? I've seen many. I'm a dozen, baby. It's the type. But this one does magic yeah. at the Opera House. At the Sydney Opera House? That's the height uh, yeah. of culture in the Sydney Opera House. <laughs> did you get to the fight on top of it? No, I should watch that later. I did like the fight <laughs> scenes in this. The Sydney Opera House fight scene is pretty sick. I mean, I guess you can't really shoot it in Sydney and not have a fight on the top of the Well, Sydney you also Opera. need to be Jackie Chan to do that. Right. You know, like you can't just get on top of the Sydney Opera House and fight. Yeah. <laughs> you can just climb up there while nobody's looking, see what happens. I just want to say that I am indeed writing a, a semi-spy novel right now. I decided to do a spy novel such detective novel instead of um, a nonfiction book because I can't really report there anymore. But um, I just want to say for the record, I did not steal the material from a spiritualist. And if there are any Voldemorts out there who are trying to get the information, don't come and murder me, please. I mean, you might have to deal with J.K. Rowling tweeting at you. Perhaps, perhaps. As long as I don't get murdered, it'll be good publicity for my book. I do aspire to become one of those authors who, like, their name on the cover of the book is in, like, a embossed font, like, slightly raised from yeah. the cover, and um, it takes up, like, half of the cover, and I am worth $500 million. The best yeah. version of that, though, is the one where it's, like, that name is most of the cover, but then right under it, it's with other oh, name yeah. james patterson shit yeah <laughs> didn't write any of i mean the obviously the second i get famous i'm gonna, <laughs> start I'm, gonna hiring send, I'm gonna get some 22 year old nerd to write it for me but yeah that's kind of and so i just want to establish that because i really don't want to become a rick rogers type <laughs> you don't want to go on australian tv and know the broadcasters yeah and he was very lecherous with that broadcaster if i do say so myself he was very lecherous in every scene and that he was he in. was that fucking room where that fight scene was in with with Lin's uh, the fucking guy Lee in the San. costume Lee, Lee Sen who was dressed up as the prostitute yeah. that room.
room was actually a great depiction of the type of skeevy room where literally every surface just has chlamydia on it of like a <laughs> just skeevy, disgusting old man, like Bond villain suite. <laughs> that that room is like stolen. That is the lair of Poison Ivy and Batman and Robin down to the petal covered little pond that the... Yes. <laughs> that yeah. emerges it's out It's just of. like a room. It's just that must be like a stock set you can get. <laughs> When you're making movies, they're like, I need a creepy <laughs> lair type room. Finest art of Asian movies. That was the distributor, and their tagline is the finest art of Asian movies. Nice. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good byline. I mean, the, the production the design they managed in here, cases. they managed to make a set that is somehow more racist than some of the shit in Detective Chinatown, too. Like, it's just covered oh, in graffiti. Right. Like Hell fake yeah. looking graffiti, like all primary colors, nothing faded, fresh sprayed graffiti. And like they walk in and it's like, oh, drug dealer on your right. You know, someone getting mugged on your left. It was this yeah, weird like underground Christiania type thing. And <laughs> they were in Sydney, right? Like she just opens a lock to this like underworld, like this horrifyingly bright. <laughs> right. filled with people who just say racist things to each other. This Willy Wonka <laughs> slum. <laughs> Well, but that, yeah, that's a classic action movie feature, is there's always some kind of dystopian version of the future, but it's hyper-neon. This wasn't like Blade Runner, this was like a Fanta commercial. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm telling you, I feel like you see that in other, act- like the Tim Burton Batman movies, I feel like there was some of that. This is but, like uh, mid-2000s Pepsi commercial. Uh, yeah. I mean, that sounds great. <laughs> Pepsi commercials have always been so good. <laughs> like, Pepsi sucks, but that Kylie Jenner Pepsi commercial will forever was be the best cool. commercial. Yeah. Probably yeah, ever. <laughs> I don't know. Should we talk about what the fuck happens at the end of this movie? I guess <laughs> we will be spoiling for you, Lauren. I don't know if it I spoils anything. I guess- no, no, no. The Wikipedia article clearly does not cover the very last scene of this movie. Where <laughs> It's hard to the, spoil because it doesn't like, make sense. It doesn't make sense. It's definitely not a part of the movie. Okay, There's a, there's a, a big fight on the Star right? Destroyer. The Star Destroyer where he blows up. His arm back? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he gets some robot blood or something. Yeah, so he has okay. by the end of it. <laughs> and Lee San is able to escape and has like the secrets for this technology or whatever. And some Russian approaches him to buy this technology and he just says, No, I've got a dinner date with Jackie Chan and speeds away into the distance. Literally cuts. says Jackie Chan's name for the first time in this movie. Like what the fuck? What? Yeah. <laughs> he just said he has a date with Jackie Chan and the movie ends. Maybe it's <laughs> That's the movie going meta, you know, like at the end, the movie's like, well, obviously, yeah, we're, the we're... Is why they felt the need to do that. No, no. In the same way that the Rick Rogers book was taken from that story. I think this movie is taken from, I keep thinking of him as octopus and the mermaid, but taken from that guy, this epilogue of this movie is him selling the idea for this movie to Jackie Chan. Whoa. That is, that is the only oh, shit, way that, that ending makes sense. A twist. Yeah. That is I the only that's way that scene works. <laughs> I think that's what we're definitely what we're supposed to conclude from that. He also does like a brief skyfall scene at the end where he like jumps off the plane into the water and oh. it's, that, it's that water scene. Yeah, I'm watch skyfall again. I've been meaning to watch skyfall again because I watched Casino Royale again recently and was kind of unimpressed. Really? 
Yeah, and I've always loved that movie. I just didn't feel as good when I watched it again. I don't know. But I had just watched, like, North by Northwest, and I don't know. I think I was kind of... Your immediate reaction to North by Northwest, though, was it's not as good as Casino Royale. It's not as good as Casino Royale. And then I watched (laughs) Casino Royale, I'm like, yeah, this is kind of horseshit. I think another thing this movie steals from is Frankenstein, but the bad guy at the end is very much dressed like Colin Clive in the 1930-whatever Frankenstein. Like, his scrubs are not contemporary era scrubs they're like 1930s mad scientist scrubs <laughs> but he's also just like he is the monster too if you think this is good after watching you know a third of it imagine watching the whole thing seven times like it gets i still so don't understand why you did that just interviews fell through and you know <laughs> I think yeah. by the end, probably by the fifth time, because I would say by my first three times, like, I hated this movie. And, like, I kind of like it yeah. now. No. It's one of the yeah. few movies this season that gets worse if you play it at three times speed. <laughs> oh, wait, I should have watched it like that. God damn it. <laughs> then I would have finished The watching these movies is to watch them at three times speed. But no, this <laughs> one is this one is grading even at two times speed. At one time speed. Right. At one time speed, I, I can handle this one. So the first time I watched it, I watched at regular speed and I was like, eh, it was fine. It was better than some stuff we watched, worse than some stuff. Then I watched it a couple of times at two, three times speed. But last week I watched it at like one time speed and I was like, ah, oh, it's good again. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, that's you insane. Broke through to the other side. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Next time you just got to watch it at half speed and see how it feels. <laughs> God. Now that is a real psycho move, watching it at half speed. <laughs> I would love to meet someone who watches a movie at half speed. We should be the podcast who does close reads of movies at half speed. Oh, God. There's that Ross Sutherland Rumble in the Bronx video that's at, like, 1 100 this speed. Down. Yeah, yeah that's, that was really good. We couldn't do it that well. <laughs> no, he just close reads it so well. But at half speed, this would be, like, the length of a, one of those Lord of the Rings movies, like an extended edition, which uh, I can't get through um, one of yes, those. Yes, it would be. You can't even get through a Lord of the Rings movie? I have, but not again. Yeah. Not twice. To be honest, I have a hard time with movies in general. I I can't, like, this is so bad. I can't do Martin Scorsese movies. They're too slow Oh, well, the, that last one was real slow. The only reason I watched it all at the same time is because I was on a plane and I had downloaded <laughs> it. I was like, all right, I guess I'm sitting down and watching Robert yeah. De Niro kind of murder people and have not too many regrets about it for three and a half hours. I do feel like yeah. Bleeding Steel would be a better plane movie what you want on a plane is something dumb and quick don't really have to keep track of anything and this movie doesn't expect you to keep track of anything just keeps throwing shit at you but then just watch the pacifier (laughs) (laughs) that is the perfect plane movie Last time I watched Skyfall, it was on a plane, and that worked. The ship blew up. It was... Oh, I'd like to watch Skyfall on a plane. Yeah, you know, they can... That's a little too good. I feel like the best movie you should watch on a plane is, like, Now You... What's that? Now You See Now Me. Now You See yeah, Me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that kind of thing, you know? That's very like... much a plane movie. Dude, I always watch prestige movies on the plane. That's the only way I ever watch prestige movies. It's, like, four months after the Oscars. Yeah, I I'm love like, oh, uh, this guy yeah, nominated. Tarkovsky movie into a 
pulled or just for flying. No, it's just whatever they have. Because, like, I do these international flights. They'll just have a menu of movies that were big hits Every four months ago. Every time I've flown a, uh, like a Russian airline, they have something that came out, like, two weeks ago, but it's a cam. And it's amazing that nice. they just put that shit on the, like... <laughs> Russians rule so much. People need to see it. <laughs> yeah. You get that shit, you pirate it. You don't have to pay the company anything to get the plane version. That's what you can do when you can just take Ukraine, you know? You just pirate <laughs> movies for your plans. Putin's so good stuff. It would be amazing if Jackie Chan made a deal with an airline where they could only play Jackie Chan movies. <laughs> like, he would give them to them for free, but they could only play anywhere from his career, you know, down to, like, Drunken yeah. Master up to uh, would, Iron Mask. Sure. Hell yeah. <laughs> oh, that would be awesome, actually. He could do that himself. He could start, uh, you know, <laughs> an airline. He could start a Disney Plus. <laughs> he could start the Disney Plus of Jackie Chan. The Jackie Chan channel. If two billion people, you know, if, like, a certain portion of the Earth that love Jackie Chan pays even a dime a month. He'd be, you know, yeah, doing real good. I think he could go for this scale thing in a way that Netflix can't. I mean, again, like I think it's basically on the same level of Disney Plus in terms of plausibility. So yeah, he's. I think he should go as for iconic it. as Mickey Mouse. I think. Yeah, I think this Jackie should be Chan, his, 70, you know, his 75th birthday project. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's like, if you ever want to watch my movies again, subscribe to my service. If you ever want to watch my movies <laughs> again, my yeah, buy this plane ticket. Yeah. Remember yeah, Rush Hour? Like... You'll never see it again unless you're flying to, I don't know, Malaysia <laughs> or whatever. And, like, yeah, all of his planes fly hour. only into China. Like, no round trips. <laughs> no return tickets. <laughs> Oh, no. oh, you gotta, yeah, you gotta buy your return tickets separately. Sorry. I uh, mean, this is innovation, right? Like, how long? Like, planes have been the same since like the 60s. It needs some kind of disruption. Maybe they could yeah. innovate in the same way that Bleeding Steel innovates by like making a Star Destroyer to fly people yeah. around. Powered Ooh. by like hearts, like little <laughs> orphan hearts. <laughs> right. <laughs> I want to rewatch Robocop. <laughs> yeah. You always just make me want to watch a better movie. Well, that's because they're yeah, all, all like the stolen from old movies. <laughs> all new movies. Yeah, I guess that's why. And so rarely are done better. Yeah, almost never. Almost. But that's okay. That's the logic of capital, so. It gets better and better. It does better and more productive things. I mean, yeah, definitely the endless franchising of various properties so that they literally have to make a movie every two years or they lose the right to the IP <laughs> is a really good idea. Like, that's probably why they marketed this movie as a police story movie. And like the IP to police story. And like Thailand, only in I think only in Thailand this was released as Police Story Future Cop or something like that. Damn, there must have been a lot of disappointed Thai people <laughs> in the theater. I mean, it couldn't be more disappointing than Police Story Lockdown. Well, if you go into it thinking it is a police story, it's probably worse. Yeah, He's like, he doesn't do any cool cop shit, though. You know, there's not like futuristic cop shit going on. It's just this Andre guy in space for no reason. Like, he doesn't have cool... Like, Jackie isn't equipped with cool tech in this at any point. Yeah. Well, he you don't grows an arm. Boulders. He grows a fucking arm. That's true. That's true. He is the cool tech. I guess. He's got his little bat cave. <laughs> yeah, he's got his basement that he locks the guy in. I found that scene pretty funny, actually. I thought, like, there were a couple of actual laughs in this. Like, he puts this guy in this exercise machine. I don't know what you call it. Arm press thing? I don't know. He's, like, supposed... He's, he can't bring his hands together unless he can it's lift like the, the shit. Yeah, it's a chest oh, press. Oh, yeah. no, no, no. I remember. I was oh, thinking... yeah, I know it. 
Yeah, yeah, and he we, give, he puts yeah. a key Jim's, in one Jim's hand, and then a, and then an explosion goes off, and the guy drops the key, and he's just fucked. But it's the movie doesn't explain how he gets out. Yeah, exactly. There's no explanation of how that guy gets out of that. Maybe he just worked really hard. <laughs> yeah. First, he brought his arms together, and then he tore off the handcuffs. He escapes from there and ends up, like, throwing eggs at cars, <laughs> and they slip in Mario Kart fashion. <laughs> well, he pours some oil on the street. <laughs> it was like Mario Kart. It was literally like Mario Kart. <laughs> also, there's definitely, like, product placement going on in this movie. Like, I don't remember what it was, like a Volkswagen or an Audi, but everybody drives the same car. Whether it's the bad guys, the good guys. That's, that's like, a common thing. In, in like, like Casino movies, Royale, yeah. everybody's driving, like, Fords or some shit. Like, why? Like, that's terrible. <laughs> why would you let that happen? James Bond in a Ford. That does seem incongruous. I would imagine that in Bleeding Steel, it's not a paid branding opportunity. It's like Jackie Chan has a huge car dealership. Like, he saw a car and he was like, yeah, I'm putting that in all my movies from now on and I'll sell it. Like he did with North Face. Oh, like that's an advertisement for his own car dealer that he has? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, apparently so many, he's like, the, franchise. Yeah, he's the licensed Segway dealer in some China. large oh, part so of China. Oh, he just has, like, some franchise somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, apparently he and brought he North Face to, to China. Oh, good for him. <laughs> yeah. He's just an incredible human human being like an incredible capitalist does he have a sunglasses hut i feel like well he has his own line of clothing franchises like he he wears his own line of clothing to all of his interviews and he's always got one outfit for each movie you've seen jackie chan for a month now and you're like oh i gotta buy that shirt from jackie chan you know oh my god yeah, the one for the foreigner had, like, different colored buttons. It was weird. He's kind of like Rihanna with Fenty. He's just built a whole... <laughs> yeah. Except you know, none of these brands are, like, I don't know. I mean, Jackie Chan would be a great Instagram influencer. He'd be, like, the biggest Instagram person. Yeah, whereas JC just... is actually is he not the on best. Instagram? No, he is on Instagram, but his son JC is a better poster. He's a Bitcoin well, guy. JC Chan is <laughs> a Bitcoin found that guy. Out today, of yeah. course, of course. <laughs> He's literally a Bitcoin. I was shocked. I was like, <laughs> you can't, you can't be that. Like, come on, you're like a billionaire, dude. Come on. He was also Stop. posting about like, yeah, Gandhi told me to buy Bitcoin. Like, what? <laughs> He's like your local Facebook level forex. Your fail son, yeah. I love JC. He's amazing. <laughs> Thanks to Lauren Teixeira for joining us again. Up next is the film's composer, Peng Fei. How did you initially get into composing music for movies? Uh, little by little. I, I started like uh, 2008 or 2009. First, with both like some Taiwanese movies, that was like a low-budget artistic movie. Some of those actually win some uh, awards, like uh, Golden Horse, but not the music. <laughs> so, were you still based in the mainland? A lot of Taiwanese production were actually part of made in uh, mainland. Actually, more and more. Also, Hong Kong production. So, I've seen on your IMDb profile page that. In addition to you know being a composer for a bunch of movies and some of them that we've already reviewed, you're also a also on the violin and you have solo performances at Royal Albert Hall, Kennedy Center. I mean, I was wondering how would you compare those working for something like that versus scoring a blockbuster film? Working with a film score that 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 pays a lot of better, yeah, <laughs> uh, generally. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if those songs will be on the public, this interview. 
Hmm? Oh yeah, it, it will be. It'll it'll oh, be oh. part of the yeah, podcast. Oh, okay, yeah. so then I better be careful. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That that pays better. Um, uh, but uh, to have live performance uh, experienced earlier, uh, doing tours with a different kind of bands, and I have like a bunch of bands. I think most of them you can now find uh, in Google or, or something. Uh, those are like uh, basically was for the like music festivals and, and, and some pop concert. I, well, I do have... I do play in pop concert for like a lot of years until last year, actually, just right before the coronavirus. Oh, cool. Uh, it was all like a good experience. We do concerts like every at a busy time every week or even twice every week. Like, that gave me a lot of experience for doing film music because, in, you know, in Chinese film music, it's not like as that strong uh, tradition from the classic orchestra uh, as US or Europe. But China is, is not like that. We, we do some orchestra stuff, but that's the only part of it. So uh, a lot of them were, I would consider more combined with pop music. When you're scoring your films, do you draw more from that Western tradition or do you feel like you're more rooted in the tradition of Chinese films? It depends on what kind of project that, that goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're talking about uh, what, what that film called? Bleeding Steel? Or... Uh, yeah. Bleeding Steel. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. For that, it actually it has very little Chinese or something like local architecture to it. it. It doesn't have to be something Chinese or anyway. Uh, it can be like any product in the West. So I think the director and, and, and the production team was, was basically built on that kind of image. Uh, but some of other Jackie Chung's work, they were like the represent Chinese style. Uh, for me, it, it's the same. Some of my other work is like quite Chinese. Uh, some are like, uh, it's hard to say like where that come from. Basically, there was like Western film music vocabulary. What about your Hello, Mr. Billionaire score? Where would that land on that spectrum? Uh, that's like a weird combination with uh, some... Uh, Actually, some stereotype of Hong Kong cool film mm. and some uh, a bit inspired by the Dog Island, something. Uh, uh, oh, Isle of Dogs? The sound of some part of that sound was, was inspired by, by that. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, but that's like a Japanese style. I think I can part of grab the drums sounding mm-hmm. into some some kind of other stuff like uh, to put on different kind of music on top of it. Uh, that's the drums sound like uh, it's Asian, but uh, it's not very particular. Like where Japan, China, Korea, or whatever, we all have that kind of drum sound. So that's sort of the idea to combine like uh, some Asian attached to uh, a different vibe. Uh, another thing that was like from uh, the, the the Hong Kong's old-fashioned stereotype kind of thing. 
it, it sounds like a, a old film soundtrack. Yeah. And there were like a part which was sound even more like what do we call it? this propaganda thing <laughs> of the communism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like state movies. Um, so that was from uh, in the 60s and 70s, this mainland China. They develop a, a certain way that orchestration uh, to use the Western orchestra playing a Chinese style music. Mm. The, that music style built on those era. Um, basically, that started, I think, from Shanghai. Uh, some composers, they had like a workshop and, and, and they built up that kind of uh, stuff. And then they, they, they actually came out, came out of some uh, famous piece by 60s and 70s, like uh, Chinese traditional music rearrangement or re-orchestrated uh, uh, or a new piece or a new Chinese style piece that build on the Western orchestra style. Uh, use all the instruments from traditional uh, European orchestra. And... Uh, yeah, that's the style we sometimes using as well. Uh, as you see that, you can see some of those were studied by the Kung Fu Panda. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. In those series, the Kung Fu Panda mm -hmm. series, uh, you can find a yeah. lot of like these style that from the 60s and 70s. Interesting. Are there composers who feel very strongly about you know, one kind of sound over another, like you're talking about more traditional or a blend? Like, are there people who just very strongly think like it should sound like this or it should sound like that? Or ha has this oh, changed over time? You mean other composers? Yeah, in... Um, other composers, yeah. In the mainland like, uh, industry. Just, uh, well, for film, that's very few guys were, were, were still... Uh, they were like a lot of those kind of composers uh, but nowadays they well as, as what I uh, mentioned that those days the film it needs to be like more uh, to fit in with uh, modern uh, Chinese production so that requires a lot of style mm -hmm. uh, including the pop music the 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 western film for instance like uh, the western music from the, the Hollywood like western film music like cowboys and those kind of thing. Mm. That sometimes we need to study. That's sort of a vocabulary sometimes you maybe can use. Or uh, European classical music. So that that's something we cannot avoid. But before, like the old-fashioned Chinese film, like we were talking about before the 2000, mm -hmm. uh, there were some uh, composer like the Senbao, uh, they are good on uh, using what we call the the orchestra or some uh, some uh, some solo Chinese instrument together with orchestra. They they write a lot of piece with uh, a lot of film scores with that kind of style. Uh, you can see from like Zhang Yimou's movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and those those somehow I don't think he's still writing film music, but he's doing a lot of musicals nowadays, uh, like stage production. And he's yeah, stage production because I don't know that that maybe give him more like a longer period to mm. to compose. 
And Zhao Jiping, of course, he is very good on on writing. It's great on like、uh, writing Chinese film, and combine some、uh, this music style with it. It's it's sort of like. Sort of with the Chinese orchestration tradition, with this French music, like in French music in the nineteen thirties style, it it sounds like almost between French and Chinese. So、wow. that's his style. Zhou Jiping, he wrote a lot of film that、uh, like Satie that,、uh, type French music. Like, like tinkling no, piano. No, it was more like a Debussy. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay.、Mm, okay, very cool. Yeah, he's combining with those like French, yeah, French way and and actually,、uh, I think the Japanese composer like Joy Asai Asashi,、uh, a lot of like、uh, cartoons, cartoon film. He he learned a, a lot from Zhao Jiping. Oh wow! The way he manipulated the orchestra.、Mm-hmm. Uh, using like fourth octave to build up, and with the, all this modulation,、uh, yeah, I think that's that's where he got all this、uh, to learn. And now it, it, he became like very extreme commercial film composer. And Zhao Jiping still like a, a professor, probably. Oh, he's retired, but、mm-hmm. he was he was a professor in the school and teaching. How did you get involved with Bleeding Steel? It was coincidence, actually. I was touring in Sydney, 2017, I think. That、oh, okay, that was 2016.、Mm-hmm. I was I was in uh, uh, in Sydney with a, a touring with a Karima, and then、uh, by some chance we bumped into the producer of the Bleeding Steel. That was like a casual dinner, and he's a friend of friend of mine. So,、uh, like, I I know they were shooting a movie. I didn't know what kind of movie. I know there was like probably some like people like Jackie Chan's in there.、Uh, so we just had dinner, <laughs> and then we just had a, a had a good time. We didn't talk about anything about work. And then、um, after half year or something, I got a call from him, and、uh, he was asking me if I'm interested to 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 see the film and. I was like, okay, <laughs> why not? And, and <laughs> yeah, then they start talk about if I'm willing to willing to do the the scoring for the film. I was like, okay, yeah, I I can do it, and I can arrange the schedule in in my. So that's how it works. Or how long did they get? Yeah,、uh, that was like three months. Yeah, got three months, and including the the recording mixing, that's like probably four months.、Wow. And then I have to go to Bangkok to do the post production. Uh, actually, it was it was great. Um, it was in in, in bloody cold in Beijing.、Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it was winter, and then we go to Bangkok. Ah,、oh, that was that was nice. <laughs> that sounds nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When the producer first showed you the movie, so like before you were, you know, tasked with making the score, what did you think? Like, what did you think you would make sound? Well, I think this this sort of movie it should be like more song we call international.、Mm-hmm. Doesn't have to be like very Chinese, as as you see from the film. It has a lot of cliche that's 
from well even Hong Kong film and Hollywood film. So the the music the music itself shouldn't be an another style apart from the film. So、mm-hmm. yeah, that's、uh, yeah that's well that's a, that's a good drive for like、uh, Ali, and to do that kind of filming that time. Uh, nowadays, I I don't know if they still willing to do this sort of project because that that's that every film in China, whatever it is, succeed or fail, it's a period study work. Uh, for because we, we the Chinese industry was behind,、uh, for instance, like Hollywood for a lot of years, and 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 still for the production level and everything, it's still a bit. Behind, but I would say、uh, it's it's getting closer than before. So there's a lot of path.、Uh, every film production company、uh, has to go through. Otherwise, they 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 to to complete that、uh, the film industry's progress、uh, for nowadays modern film. So there's no other way around. Sometimes.、Mm-hmm. So when you were、yeah. when you were growing up, did you have any expectation that the film industry in China was going to be as big as it is today? No, no, nobody can imagine. I I don't think people even working the film industry, nobody can imagine. I don't really watch Chinese local film that much before 2010. So we don't even know which、uh, this year、uh, what the Chinese film were released. Sometimes we don't know, and I was living in Shanghai those years before 2017.、Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah, before 2010, we we go to cinema actually quite few times a year, but、uh, basically like American film.、Um, yeah. Chinese film were like very small percent that we actually go to see,、uh, like maybe once a year. <laughs> is、um, is that counting Hong Kong film too? Yeah, yeah. Hong Hong Kong film were like quite popular during nineties and early two thousand. Uh, after uh, it's it's hard to say nowadays. Hong Kong, it's having a hard time to compete with the local Chinese production as well. Do Do you think as someone who grew up in mainland China, you have an advantage over composers who came up in Hong Kong at this point in the film industry? Yeah, there is some、uh, great composers from Hong Kong. Uh, been there for quite a while. Uh, Jin Pei Da, you know, you know, I, I, I don't know his English name. He probably had some kind of English name. And there's another one called even Wang Wang Zhongxian.、Mm-hmm. The is he the he's, really he's young one? Also, he's not young. He's <laughs> like older than me. <laughs> <laughs> The composer for Chinese score writing, that job just created recently. It was very small、uh, production. Very few composers doing it. Now、uh, the last few years got expanded, so、uh, they can allow、uh, more Chinese local composers into the field. It was a good time for me to get in.、Yeah. Uh, my first film with、uh, just me myself and complete that was、uh, Lost in Hong Kong. I think that's two thousand fifteen. 
uh when you were when you were growing up you're mentioning you watching a lot of american movies mostly maybe a few hong kong movies so did jackie chan growing up oh uh, that was that in the cinema uh, yeah oh, okay, okay. we watch a lot more at home actually oh, okay Mm-hmm. Okay. China was were actually those years were or never that good with uh copyright protecting. <laughs> so the you have to get the, <laughs> you have to get the pirated versions. Yeah. Uh, yeah, in in our school like music conservatories in both the school I was I was studying at, they were frequently playing like western film. Mm-hmm. And Chinese film sometimes very few Chinese film, but mostly Western film. Uh, that's not only from Hollywood. That's a lot of European film. Mm-hmm. Um, were never been approved to put played in China. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was like illegally played, but it was in the school. So that's that's maybe okay. <laughs> and and well, it's a, it's it's art. <laughs> School, so, yeah, yeah, you gotta uh, get exposed. Sometimes we play the film; it was a little over over the top. That was not really fitting with the the communism, mm-hmm. you know, the, the inspiration. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it it was good for us to see a lot of like uh, Western film um, at that time, even in the school. And after that, you know, there's. Early two thousand, you can find like all kind of film, like DVDs, and uh, we never really uh, popular with the VHS tape. Hmm. So that that came out with, with DVDs. So you can find like, like uh, any film, probably for like one dollar or one half dollar for a film. Did that you see a lot of Jackie years. Chan movies now, growing up? Or uh, no. I didn't see that much Jackie Chan's movie. He has a lot of movies. Yeah, he has like I don't know how many was yeah. it. I watched um, probably all of his movie from early nineties to two thousand. Yeah, out of it. Wow. Uh, but before nineties, he has like the twenty thirties. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I watched very few of those. Yeah. Did you get to what meet him first... while yeah. while making this movie? While making Blade and well while working on Blade I met Steel? him with this. Uh, I met him with some other project. It was like ran- very random meeting. <laughs> I was not uh, even to introduce myself, but uh, he's the actor. So sometimes we don't really meet the actor. How do you score a heavily choreographed fight scene? What's your approach when you have like a Jackie Chan battle or something to score? <laughs> A Jackie Chan's battle is different with the, like, uh, for instance, like other Chinese film. But with the uh, with the U.S. film nowadays, sometimes can be alike. It's it's like Jackie Chan's fight style. Sometimes it's a comedy. It was not just uh, action. So you've got to write like uh, this serious music, like the danger, a little scary, and with the comedy together. Sometimes it's 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 challenge, but. Uh, it's fun. Yeah. It, it also seems and, kind of interesting, though, that this movie is such a sci-fi movie, but you went with a very string-heavy score rather than a very electronic-heavy score. Could you talk about the thinking behind yeah, that? Yeah, because I talked to the director. Uh, he thinks it's, uh, it's a soft sign uh, film. It, it's not like... Uh, hmm. We need to make the film more 
realistic uh, uh, to put more nowadays. So I didn't put that much like uh, electronic background and make that sound like more like um, druggy feel. Uh, no, it was more like down to earth. We we've heard that recently the Chinese film industry, even before the coronavirus, was making fewer movies after the whole Fun Bing Bing thing. Has has that affected your? Oh yeah. <laughs> has that affected the movies you're working on? Yes, yes, actually. Yeah, I have a project that's that's building on. Probably will shoot at the end of this year. It was great, a, a great script. That I just had the meetings uh, with the director and production team. Um, yeah, we are. You see, that's that's a progress steps we we never can miss. So we have to get over that and 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 then to <laughs> to approach the all different kind of film style. To, to build a, that, that industry, mm. um, yeah, I'm working on some of those kind of project too. Did they get delayed by the coronavirus? Yeah, uh, I have like I have four projects and it's going on. One I haven't shoot it yet. There's there were two already finished the shooting, mm-hmm. but it's it's supposed to be already on the the cinema. Uh, but it's postponing till now, and we we don't know. So maybe I should slow down to take new project. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, when, once they come back all together, I couldn't I couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be kind of tough. <laughs> Didn't Beijing yeah. like shut I'm, down I'm... again recently, briefly? The cinema were never open. Okay. Like, wasn't there a new outbreak in Beijing a few weeks ago? That was like, well, but compared to U.S., it was nothing serious. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> we have like uh, 100, 200 cases, something oh, yeah. like that. Not 30,000. I think, I think like... since we started this conversation, we probably had like <laughs> 10 times that many cases in the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the whole city was panicked for like 200 cases. And... Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, but uh, the cinema were never open. There were like uh, some voice in the society that were like, the cinema should be open. We should reboot our economy and stuff like that. But we'll, we'll, we'll see. Because the film industry was was not like others. Uh, if the cinema's open nowadays, because somewhere is still closed, somewhere probably good for open but china is a big country so that only old film can go on the mm. cinema and how many people willing to go to see an old film probably some <laughs> but but the cinema they they have their cost every day open uh then maybe not even to make their cost back and then then they're probably losing more money <laughs> than than shutting it down and with a new film, new film, they all have this, you know, lock keys. So they were good for some period in this country to to get it in. So that was try to avoid uh, the, the the illegal copies. And, mm-hmm. um, so that uh, every film had that key open for uh, like a month or some days, or it depends on the film. But it has to sync. The whole country. 
have there been movies that were supposed to come out in theaters but then were released for streaming or just online yeah i'm uh there were like i think there were three cinema films that was released online i made the two scores out of it <laughs> I kind of busy year, you know. I was like, okay, so good year for you. <laughs> yeah, and then I was like, they were both online. I was like, I was even shocked. Like all my I think, films. How big does a streaming release get in China? Because I know in the states now, because you know, we probably won't have theaters ever again. Anything <laughs> that comes out on Netflix is the biggest ever again. Well, yeah. <laughs> I don't know about ever again. Yeah, but a, wa- a long Netflix. while. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. I, I maybe should uh, write some uh, music for the TV dramas then. Yeah. Uh, actually, I'm considering about to take some project from TV dramas. I think uh, in, even in China, a lot of people from film industry that will go to uh, the TV series production. Is, is TV like getting sort of more prestige over there? Yeah, because that's the only thing that people can talk about with anything mm. like according to drama. Yeah. Yeah, because there, there's no film. Yeah. There's no new film. The TV uh, productions recently got a lot of like uh, political uh, problems as well. Because that's if that's the only thing that drama then can uh, can shows us that, that that grab a lot of attention actually uh, just last week there were like one uh what do we call it uh, crime fiction kind of series that was very controversial uh, actually got attention from the government and then they probably built up a new uh, what do we call interrogate new new filter system Oh, well. New filter, yeah, yeah, <laughs> to 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 interrogate the, the the all the TV series. So a lot of them had that kind of problem. Now. Wow, that sucks. Yeah, that in the states, we have so many bad TV shows. <laughs> yeah, well, well, you know, before those people were like paying more attention to film. No, no, they have some other things to do. Yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think. Well, the Chinese uh, cinema maybe can be ready to open at October or later December. So that's if everything goes well, uh, there would be a could be a window to open everything. Yeah, it's, in September. it's kind of interesting. I was thinking about this yesterday, like because American movies are obviously not going to be in production for like what maybe a year, two years, or something. Yeah. Or in- so there'll, there'll be, like, more, I think, Chinese movies oh, coming out, yeah. and, like, maybe Americans now will start watching Chinese blockbusters more, like we do, but, like, you know, the the regular person <laughs> who's been going to, like, watch, oh. you know. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. It could oh, happen. I don't know, I maybe. Mean, we, our actors are still alive. They could go shoot in China. They could go shoot in China, uh, another yeah. great wall. That was- they need to have 14 days or right. days. <laughs> get tested. I mean, I guess the big oh. question is, do you want Americans in your country right now? Uh, <laughs> I don't think that for film industry is a problem, but uh, for the government, I, I don't know. The, 
you know, the the, the film and and uh, and the, this kind of production they're considered as sometimes considered as part of propaganda system. Yeah, so they has like uh, this official opinion sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, let's hope in China we can open the, the cinema again uh, in the September. Uh, on the schedule, yes, there is a film gonna open, uh, gonna be online on, on September. I think uh, maybe even earlier somewhere can open their cinema and as a warm up, and they will definitely if 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 there is nothing serious happen like. Uh, they, they, they definitely will be new films on this uh, October. Thanks to Pong Fei. Up next is our conversation with Kier Beck, stunt coordinator, rigger, and second unit director on the film. I know you were homeschooling your kids last week. Is yeah. Australia still fully on lockdown? You know, no. I mean, we are and we aren't. They they relaxed the lockdown this weekend. You know, people had to go to the beach again. People were allowed to sort of go to national parks and go walking. But the shops and coffee shops and restaurants are pretty well all still closed. Mm-hmm. So it's it's mm-hmm. kind of a you know a half sort of break from the lockdown. So you know the cases are dropping, but everyone's kind of concerned about letting everyone out at once and then it right. flaring up again. So I guess we see what happens. Yeah. No, I know in New York, some coffee shops open this week. Really? Yeah. Right. I know the Australian numbers are like really yep. good. Yeah. We, we've been very lucky in Australia. Yeah. I think our government pounced on restrictions and lockdowns and international travel pretty quickly, which was mm-hmm. a good thing. Yeah. But so, you know, it'd be nice to get it over and done with so we can get back to work. Yeah. Also. Maybe to get this started, um, I wanted to ask you how you got involved with Bleeding Steel in the beginning. I got involved with Bleeding Steel. I got uh, contacted by one of Jackie Chan's stunt guys. I'm up in Queensland, obviously, so they're shooting down in Sydney. So they were looking for an Australian stunt coordinator. That's how I kind of got my calling was through those guys, through the Jackie Chan team. I'd worked with them sort of over the years past, you know, in China and Hong Kong doing other stuff. So that's how I got involved with them. So, yeah, so Max Max uh, contacted me and then we we hooked up on the phone a couple of times and then I went down to Sydney and met met Max and his guys and then we pretty well kicked it off from there, which was cool. Was uh, getting an Australian guy on, like, did that have something to do with the Sydney Opera House scene, which was like, I don't know, the really yeah. standout scene? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I... Yeah, you know, I came on as the stunt coordinator and obviously also to to run the rigging side of the stunt department. And that sequence on the Sydney Opera House was sort of a, almost a three-month evolution to be able to go through the process and get permissions and permits to enable us to get onto the top sale of the Opera House to obviously rig a system up there to keep the performers safe but also rig something up there for Jackie Chan to be attached to and and carry out the sequence you know we had with Jackie up there we had uh, Max up there the double up there Kelly Marie was doubling for the other girl so we had there was a whole bunch of people up there that took a, it took a fair amount of logistics to get that sequence to happen 
I was really curious when I was watching this. Was that sequence entirely shot up there on the sails, or was it split between on location and studio? Obviously, all the aerials mm-hmm. were on location, and then they did because they wouldn't allow us to actually skid down the tiles of the <laughs> opera house. We that was that was shot in a studio. I mean, the tiles are you mm-hmm. touch them and they virtually fall off. So we weren't allowed to do anything with the tiles. So that the you know, all that stuff of Jackie sliding down the side was was done interior, you know, on a set. One thing someone told us to ask about that scene was if you had any interesting stories about the doubles. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, the doubles were... We had Max doubled a lot of the time for the lead actress and um, I mean, obviously because of his martial arts skills. So, so that was always, you know, it's always funny to see... Max dressed up as the woman in black, which was Tesh <laughs> yeah. uh, Harbridge. So, yeah. So, yeah, that, that was cool. I mean, we had obviously Jackie's double there, who's always, you know, I think he's doubled Jackie Chan for forever and a day. And, and he's a dead ringer. Yeah, he's an absolute dead ringer for Jackie. But even though he had a double, Jackie still did most of his own stuff, which is pretty impressive. So what was your first impression of Jackie Chan? And were you a big fan of his movies before that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, to meet and work with Jackie Chan is like ticking something off your bucket list. <laughs> you know, I think every, I think anyone in anyone in any department in the film industry would beg to work with Jackie Chan just once to see what he's like. And, and my first encounter was with him was amazing. He's like he's like your granddad. <laughs> he's just so gentle and kind and generous. He's a living legend, and he's just amazing to work with. You know, he's chatty, chats to everyone. He's a brilliant, brilliant person. Were you familiar with the sort of Hong Kong style before working with him because of your history with the Matrix movies? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, my first full experience with the sort of Hong Kong martial arts work way of working was on the Matrix films, you know, obviously with Wu Ping. And I came into the industry just before that, so I kind of walked straight into the birth of the Eastern style of filmmaking creeping into the Western style of filmmaking. So I kind of was there for that transition of the wire work and martial arts and and combining the two. So it was, you know, it was familiar territory on uh, Bleeding Steel for sure. How is it different, though, working on Bleeding Steel compared to the work you did on The Matrix? A lot more chaotic. <laughs> I've got to say, I mean, the Matrix film two and three, which I worked on predominantly. You know, the Wachowskis were very precise. They ran off storyboards and previs, and everything was mapped out for us. We had plenty of rehearsal time mm-hmm. and plenty of resources and everything you could want at your disposal to be able to accomplish what they were after on that film. And Bleeding Steel, you know, with budgets. And tighter schedules, it's always a little bit more hectic and chaotic and you're sort of sometimes undermanned and sometimes you, you're just right. So it's, you know, it's all the same stuff but just sort of runs at a different pace. So how did it work? We talked to Brahim Chab, who also worked on that mm-hmm. movie, and oh, yeah. he said yep, yep. that there was quite a bit of development before filming to really get previs sort of set on this movie, were there previs sequences that were just changed on set, or was it less the case? Yeah, no, yeah, Brahim's right. Yeah, we did have a pre-production period, and I can't remember, it might have been about six weeks or so. 
which in- enables us to rehearse and shoot previews of the fight sequences and get the you know get everything set out get familiar with the locations and work out how we're going to translate out what we do in a rehearsal space into the actual location because sometimes we don't have them available to us so yeah we we had time for previews but then you know on the day Jackie would run loosely with the previews but then other ideas come up you, you get into a creative flow he does and things change rapidly so it's good to have previews and be familiar with the choreography but you know as we all found that Jackie Jackie does change things to suit the way he wants to see things done so we've noticed that uh, Jackie Chan does film in Australia and use Australian teams quite a bit is that common in the uh, Chinese film industry to come down to Australia or um is it just yeah. something that Jackie Chan likes to do? I think yeah, Jackie Jackie's mum lives in Canberra, yeah. mm. so he does come to Australia fairly often. But in saying that, you know, a lot of Chinese productions do come to Australia, obviously because it's fairly cho, it, it's nice and close, and we have the resources here. So you know, we do get a mix of Chinese productions. I worked on one called At Last up here a couple of years ago in Brisbane, which was a whole Chinese crew and Chinese. You know, the whole film was shot in Chinese. Yeah, I think it's just an appealing location, really. And plus, Jackie has his family here. You're kind of on IMDb, good old IMDb again, um, with uh, <laughs> directing some second unit on this movie. How did that work? Was that Were you given storyboards or any sort of direction by Leo Zhang before? Um, a little bit. I did all the second unit for the car sequence. There's a little bit of driving in the film. There was, um, you know, some of the, the stuff on the opera house, that was all between myself and and um, and one of the producers to second unit that, yeah. So any sort of like, you know, outside of the wire work fighting, they would just pass to me and we would go out there and shoot shoot whatever it was, which was pretty cool. I mean, my first night of second unit on that was actually directing Jackie Chan. He he turned up on set and he said he wanted to drive. So <laughs> so uh, I, I'm sitting in the back of a car with the camera operator and a focus puller and Jackie Chan driving in the front. I, I remember him saying to me, we did one pass down the street in Sydney, he turned around, looked at me, goes, am I happy with that? I'm like, oh, I don't know what to say, really. No, no, Jackie, we'll do that again. Thanks, mate. <laughs> I was like, and then uh, I actually had, funny story was, I was doing all right as far as like, you know, it's a big deal when you have someone like that on your film set. So, you know, I was hanging in there, right, and I had Nash Edgerton on the set with me, and he called me over, and he's like, do you know what's going on right now? And I'm like, what's that, Nash? He goes, you're directing Jackie Chan. <laughs> and as soon as he said that to me, it, it sort of, the, the world caved in. I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> I did not get this wrong. So it was, but it was, a, it was an awesome night, and, you know, it was one of my, I think that's a highlight in my film industry career is to say that I had a night of second unit directing Jackie Chan, of all people, which was pretty cool. How involved does Jackie get and, and the, like his whole stunt team when they work with the stunt coordinator who's not part of the team to begin with? Because the more people we talk to a part of the team, it seems like a kind of like the shadowy force that does their own thing all the time. And they're always, you know, like this they're up semi-autonomous. They do everything. You know what they do? And when you're working in with people like that, they their whole team, are, they're so professional they're so good at their job that really what you have to do is is morph in with them and become like a you know a facilitator of their requirements 
of what they need and how they want to work. So it, it is, it's, it's kind of, you know, for me it was great because I, I worked, you know, I knew Max and we'd been talking for years with each other. So for me it was a very easy transition into the team to work with them, but usually they, you just let them do their thing. They know what they're doing so well. They know filmmaking. They know their style of editing and choreography. So, yeah, you just you just watch and learn and, and join in and, and uh, help where you can. In choreography, does Jackie actively stay away from uh, using CGI assistance for his stunts? Yeah, I don't really know, actually. I mean, uh, there, was a, there was a fair bit of CG in Bleeding Steel, but, uh, you know, as far as, like, his input into it, I guess it's, it's really the CG components are only filling the gaps where we can't achieve certain things. So, um, you know, I, I guess in that terms he's probably, he probably goes with the flow and does his part and his acting and his fight choreography. And then when the uh, VFX guys need to fill the gaps, I guess they just go ahead and fill the gaps. And as long as it looks good, it's, it's good to go. Mm-hmm. Could we possibly zero in on the opera house in sort of step by step through how you guys, I mean, how you got the permits, whether that took a lot of convincing, but also okay. the, <laughs> the like, yeah, sure. developing the sure. choreography? Absolutely. Well, there's two processes to the opera house. One, obviously, is the rehearsal and fight design of the choreography, which we did at a, a studio in Sydney mapping the this sort of the general architecture of the space mm. out in a studio for the guys to do their fight choreography in and then the second part of that obviously was myself and the production team meeting and liaising with the Sydney Opera House to tell them our idea firstly to to just to get some feedback on the proposition of having Jackie Chan <laughs> you know carry out a fight on top of you know Australia's most iconic building so that once we had broached the Sydney Opera House and told them of the idea, then they, you know, that set in motion a process of dealing with the Sydney Opera House Society, the World Heritage Society. I think it's like the nephew of the original architect of the building <laughs> who now runs, you know, makes decisions on the building itself, uh, and the Australian Federal Police and the Sydney City Council. So a lot of moving parts and different departments, all responsible for a certain element of the opera house that needed ticking off for approval. So it might have been security, it might be what we're actually doing to the building. So there, there was all the and obviously um, access, how we get in and out. There, there was so many, so many sort of different people that were put together as a conglomerate that we would then take all of their requests away, and. Over the few months, I ended up, you know, we did a safe work method statement to show how we're going to work. We did a security report. We did a, a gear report. We did crew, you know, our crew that were on the roof had to have medical tests to see that we were fit and proper wow. to be able to actually climb up into the building in the first place. We had to have security police checks done on us to make sure that none of us were dodgy. So, <laughs> and, that, and that, that process took literally three months. You know, we, we shot that scene at the end of the film and uh, and that was to allow us time to negotiate with all the different departments and people involved at the Sydney Opera House. The fact that it's a Jackie Chan movie, does that make it quicker or slower in any it, way? It, no, it, it, it was probably the only reason why we were allowed to at the end. Nice. Because wow. I, I, I don't think they would allow, they would have allowed anybody else up there. 
and and Jackie Chan, I guess, is like a child to Sydney. You know, he he's a big part of Sydney, Australia, with his over the years of visiting there. Like I said, his mum lives in Canberra, mm-hmm. so for Sydney, it's it's a good thing to enable that to happen. And who else is better to do it than Jackie Chan? How many days did you end up getting that? Very few. To tell you the truth, we were only allowed up there certain times of the day and certain days of the week. We were up there only for, I believe it was just two days, two mornings of shooting. So we did one morning purely with the doubles, and then we had one morning up there with Jackie and the actress. Wow. So, yeah, so two mornings. We were up there at sunrise. We'd wait, wait, you know, wait for the magic hour in the morning and and get the helicopter up and shoot as quickly as we could and then bail off the bail off the roof when the sun got too high and then come back the next day and do it. So yeah, a couple of days and it was all all done. Was there time Did to you... set up wires or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, we, we, yeah, as part of the rigging plan that I put in place, which was a non-invasive way of rigging, which means that we don't screw or bolt or or anything to their building, so we're not invading the actual structure. So everything that I put in there for those guys was mounted to the interior walkway of the Opera House without damaging it. So, you know, that was part of the deal, that we would design and implement our own rigging system well, and then be responsible like? for the safety. You'd laugh. Very, actually, very, very simple. Uh, they had these U-shaped brackets that they're – wire system works for their safety at heights people mm-hmm. so what I, and there was a on each one of those they were probably five or six meters apart so luckily what i could do is they had a little hole in them that was big enough just to fit a shackle into so i just put shackles in all of them and then ran this little spider web of tech lines down the middle of the walkway and then you know wherever the choreography was i would just clip and re-clip the performers so they could move within a certain space but if they fell i would capture them so it was a uh, was kind of pretty convenient, really. Yeah. Wow. It sounded more elaborate than it was. <laughs> 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 no one knows that. <laughs> so, what was the development of the choreography for that one like? How closely did you have to work on in terms of just telling them yeah. this is what is yeah. possible in terms of the rigging? Yeah, that's a good question because they were we really couldn't rig anything other than, you know, putting safety lines in and small moves, small, you know, jerk backs and all that sort of stuff, purely because the space was so narrow. It was only about, it was about 600 wide and about, probably about 700 that's in, that's in metric. So, you know, like a, like a foot and a half wide and probably two foot high. So to be able to turn and twist and kick, it was very difficult. So that even though it was choreographed, in a soundstage, you, you know, using cardboard boxes to represent the space. When you get up on there on the, on the day, Jackie did change a fair bit of stuff and it, and it actually looked a lot better, you know, oh, wow. with him, you know, saying his piece and, and re-sort of choreographing bits as you go. What did you observe of his process in terms of re-choreographing? Were there any specific moments that sort of stood out? Just the way he... he because he did a lot of that fight with Max and Kelly, he would just call. He would make calls. So it, I mean, it's obviously shot with a helicopter, so you can't. There's no audio going on up there. So he would just count, he would do counts like one, two, three punch, <laughs> one, two, three kick, one, two, three block kick punch. Because <laughs> I was lying right there with them. Even, you know, I was wearing a green suit, so they just scrubbed me out. But I was there for the whole process of listening to Jackie 
calling these, you know, punch, kick, this, that, this, that. And I'm like, wow, I'm glad I'm not doing it because I'd be so lost <laughs> right now. So he, he had a, it was wonderful, very, very organic. And, and when you watch it happening live in front of you, it, it's so seamless. He has done it a million times. So, and with his doubles, it was just seamless, seamless fight choreography. And it was just getting made up on the fly a lot of the time. So you were, you were actually up there on the roof uh, while this was happening. Yeah, there was two of us in wearing full head to toe green suits, very, very, very flattering, flattering outfit. Wow. And, and the funny thing about that is, the last time I got humiliated wearing one of those things was on the Matrix film, except they were blue. <laughs> so uh, it was like a like a horrible flashback. Not again. Twenty twenty years later, or eighteen years later. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so we, we were up there. Just anything they needed, we would be up there to help them. Was there any sort of training process for Tessa Hopper? Yes, yes. Yep. She worked very closely with Kelly Marie, her double, and the Hong Kong guys, the all of the martial arts guys. So she would train every day with them doing choreography. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, she, she got put through the paces. How do you prepare someone to be sort of jerked around by a wire? Uh, all of the wire stuff and the big wire gags in the uh, in the theater were all done with her double. Ah, okay. So, uh, yeah, she, she never had to – I don't think she was in a harness once, actually. She just stepped in and did her little parts of choreography where we were seeing her face, and uh, and the rest of it was her double. So this movie was uh, – we saw some of marketing of this movie as a sort of a police story movie in some markets – was there any talk of it being part of that series while production was happening? No, there wasn't actually. Mm-hmm. No, I, not that I not that I was ever ever privy to. No, I did speak to one of the producers after Bleeding Steel had come out, and they said they were looking to do a sequel. So I, I don't know if the uh, the Lin Dong character's gone or whether he's coming back, but they were pretty positive that there would be another one. Yeah, it does sort yeah. of have that cliffhanger ending. Yeah, exactly. So you know, Very confusing I wouldn't be surprised if they. Yeah, I'll say. <laughs> I'll say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there are also a lot of like car flips in this movie. Is wire work and rigging part of that too? Uh yeah. They they did all of the car stuff over in Taiwan. I think they did that. So. Often we will have a fair input into working with vehicles that may, you know, we would work in with stunts, we'd work in with special effects, but primarily flipping cars, depending on, the, you know, if, it's, if the car is self-motivated on a ramp or with a, with a uh, ram, then, you know, that's the stunt department obviously then being facilitated by special effects. But sometimes cars are on ratchets, which would be special effects. So it depends, depends what the combination of, of equipment being used to create the action is depending, you know, determines what crew is involved with it. So if they do do a sequel to Bleeding Steel, do you think you'd be working on that? Or do you want to be in working on more Jackie Chan movies? You know, if they, if they came to Australia and said, you know, do I want a, a Guernsey again with Jackie? I'd, I'd definitely jump on board. Yeah, it was a wonderful experience. Yeah, Have you actually worked on the mainland before for a movie? I haven't. No, I've actually. Uh, I I did a couple of days on the mainland from Hong Kong on a film called Push, uh, which was two thousand and seven or eight or something. 
And, um, yeah, and that was with a lot of the old Jackie Chan stunt team at the time. So, yeah, but I haven't, I haven't done a full film in, in China. I'd love to. How different did that feel from your general, like, Hollywood work? I've seen that you've also worked on a Bollywood film. I have, yeah. I've so, like, a couple of Bollywood films. How, how does that go? <laughs> they're just they're just crazy <laughs> they're just, you know i i as crazy as it is i mean i just did a, a second unit directing job over in belarus for a film called squad which is a bollywood film and it was fantastic i i, I love the chaos i love that the pace and the chaos and the i just i reckon it's fantastic it's funny and it can be really fun so yeah, and and that you know the, the Bollywood guys are awesome, and you know that, and I found the Chinese guys to be the same as well. I love I love a bit of chaos. It's kind of fun. <laughs> Thanks to Kierbeck. Up next is our conversation with Sammy the Dwarf, who plays the Witch's Helper in this movie. We wanted to start with how you initially got cast in the film, how you started working on it. I received an email from the casting director a few months prior, September of 2016, and it was for a project called Blood of Machine. And the film was being filmed in China. At the time, nobody knew if you could take it seriously because it's not every day that you receive an email from China uh, requesting you to be cast in a project. (laughs) I forwarded the email to my agent and asked them to please handle it. We found out that the project was real and progressed really nicely. Did they ever tell you about what in your work before that had brought you to their attention? I honestly don't know. I'm going to guess it was via one of the casting websites that we had submitted, for example, on casting networks or breakdown services. It was more than likely one of those websites where they first attracted our attention. Was this the first time that you had gotten an email like this for a Chinese production? For a Chinese production, yes. It was the first time I'd ever received an email about this, about a Chinese production. I mean, I filmed in a lot of places, and working in China was just an awesome thing. It was like, yeah, let's do it. Cool. Let's go have fun. So for me, it was awesome. Was your whole section in the witch's lair filmed entirely in China, or was any of that in Australia? There were three places that the project was filmed, Taipei, Sydney, and uh, Beijing. One of the most interesting things is if you watch one of my scenes, the irony is that when there's the stairs scene, that's actually in Sydney. And the second you open the door, you're walking into Beijing. (laughs) Because, I mean, you saw them uh, fighting on the opera house in Sydney. And then my scene was filmed in Beijing. And so it was primarily based around the environments in which we worked. When you're working inside, it doesn't matter where you are, whether it's in Beijing or Sydney or Taipei. It's just a matter of creating that environment. I'm thinking about how many different locations we had. I think we filmed in two different locations in Beijing for my scene. Yeah, it was just an amazing experience. Was the director speaking in English or working through a translator? I had a personal assistant. His name was Lee Wen. Very awesome dude. He picked me up from the airport and he was the translator and the intermediary between myself and the director. The director, uh, Leo Zhang, was totally awesome. Great dude to work with. He was a lot of fun. 
what made him fun or were there any particular moments where you were like wow this guy i loved his character personality dude sat in the director's tent just sitting there smoking a cigar acting like he's a shit <laughs> and but at the same time knew how to communicate with you he was just really yeah he was really cool to work with was the style of this production any different from american productions that you've worked on I mean, working in China was definitely different than working in America for many, many, many reasons. One, you can't say fuck on screen in China. Like my scene, if you watch it, I'm saying what the fuck, and they bleep me out for the, for the word fuck. And they come over to me afterwards. They're like, yeah, you can't say fuck on Chinese film. I'm just like, okay, but I'm still happy that I got it in there, even though they bleep it out so it's super cool like that with respects to filming style i feel the filming was the same but the wardrobe and makeup were very different for example when you film in america they say what are your sizes so they say okay height shoe size shirt size pant size coat size yada 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 but there they want every single centimeter of your body I can tell you that the list for what they asked for is three times as long as the list that Americans asked for. Neck, collar, upper arm, right arm hole, left arm hole, chest, shoulder to waist, hip, set, right thigh, left thigh, right knee, left knee, right calf, left calf, ankle, height, inseam, ear to ear, head, forehead, etc., etc., etc. That's the list for China. We've heard that Chinese movies tend to be a lot more improvisational during their production period was that your experience no i feel like i was fairly well directed with respects to what i said how i did it they told me what they wanted of me i reacted to it and the way that i felt was most natural Hmm. did you get to interact with jackie chan at all offset he definitely walked in as if he was the shit (laughs) there was no question about it he walked in and said and was like yeah i'm here cool boom i mean not those words, but <laughs> yeah. he definitely had a very strong presence on set. He and I talked a few different times. He and I took pictures. And then uh, in the, one of the scenes where I show up dead, literally it was take after take after take of me spitting up bl- uh, fake blood, red corn syrup. So at one point, because I'm just drooling blood for like whatever it was, half hour, hour, he's like, would you like a towel? And so... <laughs> Yeah, he was just hilarious. We get what's called a wushu, or people who die in Chinese film get what's called a wushu. And what it is, is it's pretty much money that you spend as fast as possible so you don't die in real life. It's like a good luck charm, something like that, pretty much saying, please don't die, even though you're dying in film. It was eight bucks, uh, or the equivalent of eight bucks, and I literally just turned around and gave it to my personal assistant, Li Wen. What was life like Offset generally during this production? Yeah, Offset, uh, we just pretty much went to our own hotel rooms. And then we had days off. And it's like, what do you want to do today? And so it's like, when you go into China, it's like, you better know what you're going to do each day. Otherwise, you're just going to be wasting your time there. So we went to Tiananmen Square. We went to the Great Wall. Yeah, it was just, it was just a total blast. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Um, Every morning, one thing that's different in uh, China is every single morning, you get a message from the Chinese government 
I never was able to read it, but it was like you were receiving an, uh, an Amber Alert on our phones in America where it's just like, oh, God, what now? So you just pick up your phone and see that the government sent you a Chinese message. Again, I have no idea what it said, but that was just a different part of China. Do you think you'll go back to China for production? Is that something you'd like to do? Oh, absolutely. I, even when COVID-19 hit and people were freaking out about China, I said, dude, if I get another project in China, I'll go back tomorrow. It was a blast. <laughs> no, it really was. I mean, it was a totally different world. I don't think I could name very many similarities between China and America. I mean, outside we're all human. But I mean, with respect to driving, completely different driving. Let's say there's four lanes each way in America. Everybody goes four lanes each way. You have the asshole in the far left lane that's <laughs> driving really slowly. And then you have everybody pissed off behind him. In China, it's you have four lanes. Okay, let's make that six lanes. Let's just wean between everybody. Oh, no more room on the street. Okay, let's take the sidewalk. That's China. <laughs> yeah, that, that's China for you. I don't know how the water is in New York, but water in LA is extremely hard and they bleach the water. It just really dries out your skin. The water in Beijing was a million times worse. When you took a shower, the water literally cut your skin and I mean so drinking the water yeah no not gonna happen anybody who lives in LA they know you don't drink the water in Los Angeles yeah that would be a mistake if you did it in Beijing so just going off of your Instagram it seems like you're really into guns were you impressed by the sort of sci-fi blasters in this movie honestly watching the movie I can tell what is what but I didn't have any positive negative experiences regarding the guns in China. I, I really didn't have it um, because it wasn't something that I participated in. Sure. So I didn't have any positive negative experiences. It's weird watching a movie and seeing those couple police scenes, but no, I had no firsthand experience with that. Thanks to Lauren Teixeira, Pong Fei, and Kier... Oh, God, it's such a long list. <laughs> yeah. Thanks to Lauren Teixeira, Pong Fei, Kier Beck, and Sammy the Dwarf for being on the show. I bet you can't say that five times fast. <laughs> I want to say, I bet our audience doesn't have the attention span for it. That's it for this episode. <laughs> our original music comes from Elliot Saltmarsh and Yehuda of Fist with a PH, and our art comes courtesy of Jay Castro. Follow us on Twitter at China Film Pod. Like the Upward in the Studio Facebook page. And if you can afford it, we would really appreciate it if you would contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Upward in the Studio. We're trying to go on a date with Jackie Chan. Help out. And if you feel like it, have some thoughts or suggestions, email us at Upward in the Studio, all one word, at gmail.com. Next week, we'll be talking about Night of Shadows. But before we leave you this week, we just want to share some wisdom from the chairman. To read too many books is harmful. We'll see you in a week. Ooh.